Pastor Walt and I knew that uh, sometime during this year we wanted to do a prophecy series. It's been three years since our last prophecy series. And uh, we like going back to our Adventist apocalyptic roots. We were going to do it in the fall, but uh, we felt that the way that God led us to close our Noah series, that it would be a perfect springboard to begin now. Um, and I, I sensed for just a moment here, I wasn't looking, I was actually looking at Kristen, and Kristen didn't do it. But about a third of you, your eyes rolled when you heard we were doing a prophecy series. I, I felt it. I could feel it right here. About a third, it's about a third of you say that, you know, that when, when, when we're going to uh, do a prophecy series, you know, Daniel, Revelation and all that, a third of you just went, oh, man, what am I doing this summer? I think I can uh, maybe get out of here. But, but we think that the, uh, that we can give fresh wind to our prophecy the same way that God is giving us fresh wind here in our church. We have a message. We have a message. And I challenged Walt challenged us, I challenged us to take a look at that and begin to re-identify it. What does the Adventist message, what does the end time message look like when you begin to re-identify it for the 21st century? Um, and one is, is to begin to look at, it, at, look at Daniel, look at Revelation, look at our message and what we are called to do through the eyes of what an end time people should be looking through. And that's, this is why that we thought that the Noah series led us right up to be able to do this. So yeah, we're gonna take a look at Daniel, at Revelation. We called it, I Daniel, I John. A summer duet. <laughs> they belong together. I Daniel, when I saw the vision, I wanted to understand it. I John, I, I, when I heard the vision, I fell down at the angel. They, they belong together. They belong together in language. They belong together in content. Daniel is the key to Revelation and vice versa. And with Daniel and Revelation both giving the end time people the wind, the fire that they need, who could be against us? When you announce to any Adventist that we'll begin with the book of Daniel, begin to study on the book of Daniel, they know immediately where they want to go. They want to get right to the zoo. Okay. They want to skip past, you know, uh, uh, chapters one through six and get right to the zoo. That's, you know, in fact, the only reason they study chapter two is because it sets up the zoo. Okay. I, I want to put the brakes on just a little bit. Okay. We shouldn't rush right to the zoo. Okay. I know that they're interesting. I know that they're cool looking beasts and we want to get there and we will. We will. Let's take a little time before we rush right to the zoo, before we rush right to the prophecies themselves, because Daniel's got a lot to offer. And I believe that the only way to put fresh wind into our end time message is to look at how Daniel sets it up for us all in chapter one. Almost all you need to know, except for the prophecies themselves, you find in Daniel chapter one and what he's telling us and what he's telling an end time people. And what end time worship looks like. We close the Noah series talking about what end time worship would look like. As in the days of Noah. What was it about the people living in the days of Noah and the people living in the end time that share this in common? What will it look like? 
What is our worship supposed to look like today? What is our choices when it comes to who we will worship and how we will worship them? Daniel's a universal book. The languages that it's written in prove it. It's written half in Aramaic and half in Hebrew. Aramaic at the time was a universal language. Nearly everybody spoke it in the world. It's much like English is today. So you can say that Daniel wasn't written to hide anything from anybody. And when it gets to the Hebrew application, it's, it's, it's God's people that are supposed to be leading the world through the rest of it. And by the way, the Hebrew begins in chapter 8. He changes completely from Aramaic to Hebrew when he gets to chapter 8. It's a universal book. It plays a major role in the world's three great religions. A major role. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have all been greatly influenced by the book of Daniel. By the ancient writer Josephus, he calls Daniel the greatest of prophets. In modern day, Abraham Yahshua Heschel said that the secret of hope lies in Daniel. And Eli Weasel called him the prophet of hope. Ellen White said that Daniel should receive special attention by his people. And when Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah 61 to announce the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4, he read a passage concerning the Jubilee directly alluding to Daniel chapter 9. It's a spiritual book teaching the importance of prayer. There are four keenly specific universal prayers said in Daniel. Three of them by him himself, uh, two of them by him himself, but also one by Nebuchadnezzar, which is so cool. A pagan ruler speaking a universal prayer to be a child of God. It's a book of beauty. Its poetry is lyrical. It has prose. It has rhythm. It has musical lyricism to it. It's a book of wisdom. Ezekiel calls Daniel a wise man or the wisest of men. doesn't call him a prophet. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, uh, in the Tanakh, the order of the books of the Old Testament, you don't find Daniel in the prophets section. You find it in the wisdom writings along with Job and Ecclesiastes and Psalms and Proverbs. It's a book of the end. There are more mentioned, there is more occurrences and mention of the end or the end of days in the book of Daniel than all the other books in the Bible, even Revelation itself. It's a sealed book. At the end of Daniel, Gabriel tells Daniel to seal the book, seal it up. And important books were sealed accordingly in those days. And finally, this is my favorite. It's a book of existence. It's about real people who are having real problems and need a real God to help them. It tells stories of heroic faith. shows that with just a little bit of humility, what anybody can achieve when they place their lives in God's hands. Because Daniel teaches us of a God that not only exists, but a God that acts and a God that moves, and a God that is over all and in all and operating all of human history. And then when it comes to an end, when human history comes to an end, it'll be by the hand of God himself because he appointed the time. 
and a God who knows what the end time people will have to go through to get there. A God who calls us to existence like Daniel and his friends. So it's that last book, the book of existence, that sets up what Daniel is really trying to tell us, tell us before we even get to the prophecies. What we have to know before we get to understand that God is laying it all out for us. Dates, times, etc. But he wants you to know something, and he does it in the way that he writes. Prophecy was supposed to be studied and done in real time, not in a vacuum, but during the time in which the people were living. It, it's happening then. It's, it's, it's the crucible of life itself. We have a very parochial view, Adventists do, of prophecy. We tend to remove the prophecy from the real life in which we exist and study it and put it up there. And Daniel's trying to tell us, no, it's real. It's now. It exists because God exists. It moves. Time moves because God moves. It's that last book that sets up what a fresh wind can do for our understanding of prophecy. It's like I stated before, adults want to rush right to the zoo. In children's divisions, they put a felt board, they put put up on the felt board, uh, Daniel and his friends or Daniel and the lion's den, and they teach our children to sing Dare to Be a Daniel. But somewhere between the felt and the zoo, Daniel teaches us what we really need to know. Daniel's chapter 1, or the way we should exist, can become the fresh wind that we need to put it into what many of us would call stale old prophecy. It's been 150 years. It's been 150 years. And if it gets stale and it gets old, that's our fault. It's not Daniel's fault. So, let's take a look. What's he tell us? begins with a date, actually. In the third year of the reign of King Joachim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Joachim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Daniel begins with a date. In the third year of Joachim, we know when that date is. It's real. It's a real time. It's a real date. Joachim was a real person. So was Nebuchadnezzar. So was Babylon. They were real. Immediately, Daniel is telling you this is history. Nobody made it up. It's not a parable. It's not a poem. It's not an allegory. Daniel wants us to know his God is the one who acts in history. In fact, his God is the one in charge of all history. Not one amen. Okay. It's going to be one of those days. All right. Literally, God gave Joachim in the vessels of the temple into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It's not by accident, and it's also not by Nebuchadnezzar's cunning, his might, or his power that he made it happen. Daniel is letting you know God let this happen. God made this happen. Is Nebuchadnezzar smart? Oh, he's extremely smart. Conquered the world. He's only 22 when this happens. And he's one of the very first that says, you know what? I'm going to co-opt 
the people that I conquer rather than kill the people that I conquer. It's how Daniel and his friends end up in Babylon serving Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. He takes the best and the brightest that his nations that he conquered can offer and he puts them into his service. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the first people to begin to do that. And like I said, he's only 21, 22 by the time the first invasion of Jerusalem happens. But that isn't what Daniel is telling you why he got it done. He only got it done because God put him here. He only got it done because God allowed this to happen. Daniel is telling you in the first verse, don't believe it's because of Nebuchadnezzar's might and his power. And if we want to really begin to tie this together to what we talked about our last two studies in Noah, is that how does the world get it done? The world gets it done through power and through force and through fear and an evolutionary thought and process that says the more the might, the more I can make right. And Daniel's saying, no, we're passive creatures. It was given into his hands. Nebuchadnezzar's a passenger on this train. So he's cluing us in as to the real struggle. When Nebuchadnezzar takes the vessels, where does he take them? He takes them where? To the land of what? To the land of Shinar, it says. It's a broad plain in northern Iraq, this huge, broad plain. Why Shinar? What's significant about it? Well, the only other time that you see the word Shinar mentioned in all the Bible is in Genesis and the story of the Tower of Babel. That's where the Tower of Babel was built, is on the plain of Shinar. Nebuchadnezzar takes the, takes the vessels and he takes them to the land of Shinar because what we understand about it is that ever since the tower was built, this has become a major form of the world worship. You with me? Archaeologists have uncovered uh, these these kind of uh, pyramids, but they're not really pyramids. Uh, how many have ever seen a, a, an artist rendition of the Tower of Babel? It's, it's, it's kind of a round cone and it has this stairway that goes all the way to the top. That's a really, really accurate, really accurate description of what I believe the tower looked like. We never found the Tower of Babel, but we found thousands and thousands of these temples that look just like that. So that when they, when they, uh, when, when, when God kind of, you know, spread all the people out because it was when they got together and, and, and decided to come up with their own plan, their human plan, and didn't do what God told them to do. God said scatter. He told Noah's family to scatter. Go throughout the earth and be fruitful and multiply. But no, they all came together and came up with this plan. And what was the plan? They didn't trust God. They didn't trust the rainbow in the sky. They said he'll do it again. And when he does, we'll be ready this time. We're going to build a tower. And it wasn't just a tower to go higher than the flood. Something was supposed to happen when you got to the top of the stairs. They were trying to create a tower that would go all the way to heaven. Because Bav El in Hebrew literally means the doorway to God. And I don't have time to go into it, but when, when they uncover this, this form of religion, these, this uh, Sumerian, Mes, you know, pre-Mesopotamian form of religion with all of these, these temples where the priest would go and walk up into the doorway of God, guess who their God was? Their God was Nimrod. 
Nimrod is the very first out of Ham's family to begin to take what he wants. This is why they call him a great warrior or a mighty warrior of the God. Everywhere else, all, all down the line, they, they're all staying where they're supposed to. They're coastal people. They're a mountain people, and they're staying in these areas. Nimrod is the first one to go out of his area and begin to take what he wants. The earthly power at work to where they even begin to worship as God, a human who has that power. They're trying to replace God. They're trying to build a stairway to heaven so that when they get there, they can make sure that the flood never happens again. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to tell Daniel something. He's trying to tell all of Israel something. I just took the temples, I just took the vessels out of your temple, your God, and I'm going to go take him and I'm going to put him in the land of Shinar where my temple, the my God, is created. And thus the ancient belief that not only did my army kick your army's tail, but my God kicked your God's tail. And it's not by accident that Jerusalem and Shinar are mentioned together. Now is the battle between Jerusalem and Shinar. Now is the battle between God and God's way, signified or illustrated by Jerusalem, and the human way, the selfish human way, illustrated and signified by Babylon. By the, time when, by, by the way, when we get to Revelation and we talk about those who are against God, what is the one term John gives them? Babylon. It's ever since the tower that Babylon has become the symbol of our way of doing things, human way of doing things, evolutionary thought, more power to you, might makes right, and the way that God does things. Worshiping the lamb that was slain, love being the governing force and rule. Jerusalem versus Babylon. And when we talk about the end time, what is the one issue? There's only one. Worship. We will worship the beast because he is the pinnacle of a human God, or we will worship the lamb that was slain, that achieved it not by might nor by power. Actually, he had all the might and the power, and he abdicated it and went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. Daniel is setting it all up in the first two verses. Telling you exactly what it's going to be like. Nebuchadnezzar's name literally means a son of God. Babylon says he is the door to heaven. The conflict of Jerusalem and Babylon where Jerusalem says, no, our God is the doorway to heaven. You see it all throughout the book of Daniel. This is the great controversy. This is it. The Bible tells us, though, that God comes down and he walks and he exists. You don't have to build a tower to go to heaven. He told Moses that. It's right here. Don't have to go to heaven to get it. Don't have to go to Sheol to get it. He's right here. Moses knew because Moses walked with him and talked with him. Daniel saying, you can't initiate your own salvation. You can't, you can't save yourself any more than you can create, which was the entire issue during the flood. Humanity had gotten to the point to where they felt they didn't need God. They didn't mention Him anymore. 
And they were about ready to to uh, make extinct the human race. And God comes down and he steps in and he makes sure that it doesn't happen. Also that you and I, a few thousand years later, can gather in a building and worship him today. It's an amazing story. This is what Daniel wants to teach us. You can't do this. You can't do this. It's what he was telling the people during the flood. You can't do it. I'm sorry. I wish there was another way. But we will only live and survive and be able to get through the end time and get to the kingdom simply because he loves us. And it's the way that he operates his creation. Daniel is setting it all up for us. King commanded his palace master, Aspenaz, to bring some of the Israelites to of the royal family and of the nobility. Again, he's taking the best and the brightest and bringing them into his service. Young men without physical defect, handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. They're going to learn a whole bunch of things. What is Nebuchadnezzar trying to do? Actually, let's finish, let's finish the verse. We'll come back. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, all from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. What is he trying to do? The literature and the language of the Chaldeans was designed not just to better educate. Where else do you see the language without permanent defect? Where do you see that? You see it in Leviticus. None of the priests were to have permanent defect. They were to be noble. Nebuchadnezzar is just not trying to educate them. He's making them what? He's making them priests. They're learning to decipher thousands of cuneiform signs. They're learning three languages, Babylonian, Sumerian, and Aramaic. They're learning magical techniques to know astronomy and the maps. By now, Babylonian astronomers could, could predict eclipses. That's how good they were getting at telling the stars. They wanted to tell the future with the stars. Today, it's known as astrology. It began nearly 3,000... Uh, 2,700 years ago. He wants to change their religion. He wants to change their identity. How's he doing that? He gives them new what? He gives them new names. By the way, he knows what their names mean in Hebrew. So he just changes it to mean the same in Babylonian except with a Babylonian God. I'll get to that in just a minute. But he wants to change them by making himself their God. They will now serve as his priests. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to tell them, you're now my God. I am now your God. Sorry. And then he even tries to give them their own food. Rename. I'll take care of you. You serve me. You worship me now. In fact, the first time that Nebuchadnezzar has a shot, what does he do? Builds a statue, all of himself, and he makes everybody what? Worship it. 
Daniel, uh, is, his name is God is my judge. So Nebuchadnezzar looks at his name and says, I'm going to call you Belshazzar. Bel, may Bel preserve his life. What Daniel does, uh, well, let, let, me, let me get back. Belshazzar actually means may Bel, and Bel is the main Babylonian god. Uh, Marduk, you may have heard of him. Bel is another name for him. Okay, Belshazzar means may, uh, may Bel preserve his life. Hananiah means grace of God. So they name him Shada Aku, order of Aku, or the moon god of Babylon. Okay, uh, Mishael is who is like God. That's literally what it means. So they called him Mushalim Marduk, who is like Aku, and it turns out to be Meshach. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Ardu Nebu, the servant of Nego, Abednego. I want you to notice that Ardu Nebu, Mushalim Marduk, Shadu Aku, and Belshazzar are the names that they should have had. When Daniel writes it down, he changes one syllable or one letter in it that makes the meaning uh, renders the meeting meaningless. So Daniel says, even when he reports it to his people, we're not going to serve him one iota. We won't even be called by the names that they gave us. He changes Belshazzar to Belteshazzar. He adds a T inside there that makes Bel meaningless. He does the same with those. Shadrach and Meshach, he takes the Hebrew letter Kaf and he puts it at the end and it, and it abbreviates the entire name. It means nothing. And Abednego is supposed to be Ardu Nebu. He does the same thing and calls him Nego. There is no Nego in the Babylonian uh, deity. It means nothing. Daniel wants you to know if you're reading the book, the names they gave us mean nothing. We know who we are. God named us. We know who we are. Then the food, Daniel resolves that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Not only does he do it with the names, he's going to begin to act. He's going to begin to act very humbly. Notice that he asks. He doesn't demand. He doesn't tell. He asks. There's a, there's a courtesy here that's, that's absolutely amazing that he has with his captors. You want to change who I am? I'm going to eat something else. And it's not just what he's, it's not just that he wants to eat something else. It's what he chooses to eat. Food and worship are associated often. We know that. But what he says next here is a special statement. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Okay, he's making a statement, vegetables to eat, water to drink. You don't see this, these two words of being given and the vegetables in any other place except in Genesis 1:29, When all of vegetables, if you will, or plants yielding seed were given to human beings for themselves, given by who? given by their creator. He is nearly quoting Genesis 1.29 to the palace master saying, give me my creator's diet. By the way, is he doing it because it's healthy? No. Daniel doesn't know healthy from anything. As a matter of fact, when he says vegetables and water, he doesn't expect, nor does the palace master expect him to be healthier. Right? If I give you this, You will be emaciated. You will not look as healthy as the others. And the king will have my head, is what the palace master. Daniel is making a statement. 
It's not that he wants to be a vegetarian. It's that he wants to worship God. I'm going back to what God gave me. I know we love to use this as a vegetarian proof text. But it goes much deeper than this. Daniel's not saying, I'm going to do this for my health. Daniel's saying, I'm going to do it because I'm identifying with God. If you think Daniel was a vegetarian, you have to turn to chapter 10. He wasn't a vegetarian. In chapter 10, he wants to begin a special fast and pray. So he got away from meat and wine for 10 days. It's not a vegetarian proof text. Sorry. But what I'm trying to get at is that it goes much deeper than this. Are you with me? It's one of the reasons why our health message has gone stale is we want to make it say what it does not say. And it becomes more fashionable for us to live a better lifestyle because it's healthier. It isn't fashionable anymore to say I do it because it is a religious faith-based practice for me. It's not fashionable to do that. The end time people have made it a health message. I do it because I'm healthier. I do it because we live longer than you. Daniel had no idea what it would do for his health. He did it because God told him to. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any human sense. It only makes sense to know that what they knew about health back then. See what I'm saying? Daniel's making a statement. I know who created me. I'll live for 10 days on that. And what's amazing is the palace master does it. He goes ahead and does it because he has a certain amount of respect for Daniel. And I think this directly goes to how Daniel treated him. Asked him humbly. Something to remember about the end time message too. When they decide that they're going to worship God, God shows up. God tries to tell them, guess what? Okay, I'm here. I'm here. Because look what he says next. He goes, to these four young men, God gave what? God gave knowledge, skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end, of, notice, Daniel also had insight. It was given to him too. What Daniel is trying to tell him is, look, we're not, we're, we're not here because we're smart. Okay? We're not here because we're special. We haven't become this special end time people in the middle of this exile to become, to become counselors to the king because we were inherently smart or could recognize the signs of the times. They understand that God is with them. They understand that in the midst of their exile, remember the Babylonian exile is a punishment, if you will. It's a discipline, if you will, to try to get Israel out of the land because Israel had had perverted their worship with other gods and, and, and felt that they were doing okay. Felt that they were fine with God because they still had the land, they still had the temple. Exile was the only way to get them off top dead center, to get them out of their lukewarm, Laodicean condition, and for them to understand that there is only one God. See, you would think that a human God, a human God would say, okay, I warned them, I warned them, I warned them. Now it's time. Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem, the exile happens. This has been prophesied for 450 years, I've been telling them. 
A human God would say, now they're there. They made their bed. I'm walking away. Daniel is saying, no. He is with us. In the midst of our exile. In the midst of our punishment. God is with us. He shows up. The proof to Nebuchadnezzar that Israel's God is God is standing right in front of them. Yeah, we're smart. Yeah. But guess who made us that way? Guess who gave us this? They give glory glory to their only God. The king speaks with them, and among them, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning that which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. I think Daniel's also trying to let you know that for ten days he lived on the Creator's diet, and that made him ten times better than anyone else. I thought that was hilarious. You guys didn't even... In the midst of their exile, he shows up, walking with them and talking with them. Now, I'm sorry to bug you because we're almost done, and and you've got to say amen to that. Please let me know you're awake. In the midst of their exile, God is with them. Emmanuel, God is with us. Don't you understand that what we'll get at when we get to Revelation is that you and me, we're all in exile. We're in a place that doesn't want us to be here. We're in exile. Daniel in Revelation is our love letter from God. It's our letter letting us know that he is here. Is it going to get nasty for Daniel and his friends? You bet it is. What's coming? Furnaces, lions, jealous co-workers, betrayal. It's going to get nasty, isn't it? Daniel's trying to let you know, end time people. He's trying to let all of us know who are in exile. You can count on God. He is with you. You'll be endowed with knowledge. You'll be endowed with signs and wonders. You will be endowed to interpret prophecies that have been around for 3,000 years. Got one. We're looking for fresh wind. Let it in. Let it in and let your praise come out. There, that's better. Okay. And how long will he be with you? What he says at the end. Daniel continued there until the first year of who? King Cyrus. Okay. So how long is he going to be with him? Till the end of their exile. Because in Second Chronicles, Cyrus is the one that sends them back to the promised land. Do you see what he's telling them? I will be with you even until the what? End. Haven't we heard that before? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.
And the prophet later says, thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. Isaiah just called Cyrus a Messiah. Cyrus. Cyrus. A pagan. I forget whether he was Medo or Persian. He's one of the two. A pagan Medo-Persian ruler. He just called his Messiah, his Mashiach, right there. Whose right hand I have grasped. You're going to be freed by who? By my Messiah. Not what you would think. They would think, you know, Daniel would be the perfect Messiah, right? Perfect Jewish kid, all right? Perfect Jewish man. He should be the Messiah. I'll let him lead you home. I'll let Ezra or Nehemiah or any of them lead you home. No, no. I'm going to pick a pagan ruler to send you home. He is my Messiah. Again, God is in charge here. Not what we think should happen, but what he says will happen. I've put him, he's in my right hand to subdue nations before him, strip kings of their robes, open doors before him. And that's what Medo-Persia did with Babylon. They went in and they kicked tail and they took names. I will go before you, he tells Cyrus, and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze. I'll cut through the bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you will know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. So when he brings up Cyrus, he's letting Daniel know, I'm going to be with you always. See, and that's what we're missing in our end time message. This is, this is supposed to be the whole message. Yeah, we're going to talk about some very cool stuff. 1260 years and 2300 years and 1844 and a people risen up. We're going to talk about some very cool stuff. But what we have lost and the reason that it goes stale is that the only reason that you and I are going to be able to get through this or our ancestors or however long this is going to be. It's up to him. It's not up to us. However long it's going to be, he wants to let us know that he is with us. Every prophecy in Revelation begins with a, a, uh, an image, if you will, of Jesus himself. And he rides out and he, he goes out and he conquers where there is no more conquering to do. He is with us. Daniel is saying this is Israel's darkest time. This is our last days. In fact, when he gets to chapter 8 and he says, how long will this go on? And the angel says, 2,300 years. Daniel has had it. Ah, man. He goes, we're never going home. This is it. And his message is, is that God is with us. And to tie it in with what, Daniel, with what Noah told us, where Jesus said that as in the days of Noah... The reason that it's gone stale is because we have taken it and we have made it something selfish. We've made the prophecies in our interpretation and told the world and saying, I know something you don't know. And we've taken texts like Daniel chapter 1 and we've made them vegetarian proof texts. And we're saying, I know something you don't know. I live longer than you do. And here's why. We're right and you're wrong Come join us to be right. Well, it's gone stale because too many have joined the body of Christ in order to be righter than somebody else. That's evolution. Right makes might. That's evolution. 
Evidence makes, makes me right. When actually Daniel and his friends go against evidence, they go against everything. Nebuchadnezzar has all the evidence. The beast will have all of the evidence. Daniel and his friends and the end time people he illustrates or symbolizes will go against evidence and they will act on faith and they will say, I know our God is with us. Is it going to get ugly? Yeah. But Daniel said, don't worry, it was ugly for us too. And even in the, even in the midst of a rulership where you can't see the end of the tunnel, he has his man in place. My Messiah. You and I have our man in place. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Welcome to a Grace Point summer. Listen to Daniel and to John and our love letter, our for our exile and who we are. Going to be okay? All right. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much, Lord, for sending your servants, our spiritual fathers, our spiritual ancestors, Daniel, his friends, John, and all that you have in mind for us. Lord, help us through this horror show that we know the end is going to be. Help us to expose the beast for where he truly is, but then also expose the beast in all of us. Bring it out. Cleanse it. May we truly become that which you know, which we know that you've called us 150 years and beyond. I praise you, praise you, that I'm so privileged to be a member of this family, this part of your end time people. Infuse us with the love that we know is the only thing that will get us through the end time, to love you and to love each other as you have loved us. We thank you for how you're moving us out. We thank you for how you are moving within. Help us to dare to be our version of Daniel. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We lift up Jesus high so that the whole world may know you. We ask this in his name. Amen.